Thank you. Let's just read a few verses from Acts chapter 2. You needn't turn to it unless you particularly want to, because I'm not going to be speaking primarily about these verses. If you prefer to just listen, then please do so. But it is Acts chapter 2, verse 22. And if you do want to follow, it's on page 1093 in the church Bibles. Peter is speaking on the day of Pentecost. And he says this, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Verse 29. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. I'd like to have been there at that sermon, but I wasn't. <laughs> Just to say a word about Ivor, Ivor Cooper was supposed to be speaking today, and uh, at the end of the week he, he phoned up and said that he just couldn't make it, and I only mention it really now because, um, well, for two reasons. Firstly, so that you pray for Ivor. There's a lot of coughs and colds going around these days, as there often are at the end of the winter, but Ivor is suffering for much more than that. He has a very bad cough. Last time he came, if you remember, three or four months ago, he talked about his cough and cold, etc. None of that has disappeared in the interim period. And uh, he's got quite weak within himself over it all. And has been to the doctor, had lots of tests. He has a CT scan on Thursday and is not at all well. He's had to cancel quite a number of things. So do pray for Ivor, um, who has meant so much to us over the years at Abbey here. Then the other thing to say is, because it was at the last minute, we haven't, I'm afraid, yet produced the home group notes, the discussion questions, but we hope to e email them out to the home group leaders today or tomorrow morning. So um, apologize that, apologies that you haven't yet got them, but you will get them um, hopefully before the group tomorrow morning um, so that you have questions to discuss if you're using them in your groups. Some Years ago, a study was done, an international study, on brand awareness. 
and uh, 10,000 people in 16 countries took part, uh, 16 years old and plus, in nine countries took part in this survey on brand awareness. For example, what is this logo? Pardon? The Olympic Games. And it was actually a study conducted by the International Olympic Committee that uh, produced these results. Okay, what's this? McDonald's, the golden arches of McDonald's, where, of course, we're there several times every week. Golden arches of McDonald's. What about uh, this? Mercedes. Not very difficult, is it? What about this? Pardon? It's the United Nations. And this? The cross of Jesus. Yes. Now, when that international study was done, it was actually um, quite a few more logos than that, but these were how people saw them. First of all, the Olympic rings, 96% of the population, 76% of the population recognized the rings of the Olympic Games. And this was done before the last Olympic Games in London and after that in countries around the world, not just in, in the uh, UK but around the world, that number had gone up to 97%. People recognized the rings of the Olympic Games. McDonald's, 66% of the population recognized McDonald's. And I sometimes think that McDonald's has more of a vision for reaching the world than many of our churches do. Mercedes, 61% of the population of these countries knew the three-pointed star of Mercedes-Benz. United Nations, 30%. Not surprising that not too many, uh, not so many knew that. And the cross of Jesus Christ, how many do you think? 41%. Isn't that a shocking figure? 41% claimed that they recognized what that was about. Thank you, Alan. I can go off now. 1961 years ago, an unimposing figure of a Jewish rabbi walked into the public philosophical center of the capital of Greece. And he surveyed the scene around him and he looked around and, saw to, and he listened to the debates that were going on and then spoke up to explain the Christian faith. Most were amused by what they heard from this man they enjoyed debating, that was their hobby, it was the pastime of most people, and they enjoyed it, so they enjoyed him standing up with a view they'd never heard of before, as he spoke about Jesus Christ. And because of that, they said, come with us, and we'll take you to the debating chamber of that day, where you can have a more formal presentation of what you're talking about here. And they gave him the platform, and he stood up, and it was the Apostle Paul, of course, and he stood up and he spoke about who God was, what he came to do in sending his son, and what difference it makes. 
That was the Apostle Paul. He spoke eloquently of philosophy, of religion, of poetry and literature of his day. It was a very polished presentation. You can read it in Acts 17. Very polished presentation. But at the end of it, we are told that few believed. A few believed what he was talking about. No church was planted in Athens. In fact, there was no church planted in Athens for many, many years afterwards. No surge of excitement about the gospel. But then Paul left and he went to the next town, 50 miles away, Corinth. And he went to Corinth. We're told that when he was at Athens, a few believed, Acts 17.33, but we're not quite told what that actually means. And I put it that way because it, although it says a few believed, and even um, one person's mentioned by name, Dionysius, was mentioned by name, when Paul spoke about his ministry in that part of the world later, he said that the first fruits of his ministry, the first people who came to faith in Christ, was Stephanus, and he came from Corinth. Didn't he count Athens? And what happened there? So he says that Stephanus in Corinth was the first fruits of his ministry in that part of the world. You can read about it in Acts 16. So let me ask the question, was Paul disappointed at what happened in Athens? Was he perhaps Embarrassed about his presentation. Anybody who does any preaching will know that you sometimes speak and you're really discouraged by your own presentation of what you've had to say. Just hasn't worked well. Anybody knows that. Was Paul like that? Was he disappointed at his presentation in Athens? Eloquent though it was, polished though it was, did he feel a sense of shame, a sense of failure about it? Well, we do not know. But what we do know is that when he got to Corinth, as I say, about 50 miles east, just south, but mostly east from um, Athens, his approach was completely different from what he did in Athens. Completely different. It was entirely different. Now, the difference could have been because Athens was mostly Gentiles, almost all Gentiles. Whereas in Corinth, there were mixtures of Gentiles and Jews. It could have been for that reason. We're not specifically told. But what we do know is this, that when he got to Corinth, he says this, Brothers and sisters, he wrote to them and told them about it, Brothers and sisters, when I came to you, you in Corinth, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence and human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing among you while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. My message, uh, I came to you with much weakness and in great fear and trembling. My message and preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might rest not on human wisdom, but on God's power. Unlike his preaching at Athens, where he did not mention Jesus specifically even once, according to Acts 17, though he alluded to Jesus, here Paul says when he got to Corinth, I don't say 
nothing about anything else except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the center of what he had to say. It's the center of everything I had to share with you. Nothing else matters. He says uh, to the Corinthians, He sent me to preach words not with human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Before he left Corinth, Paul had planted a church in that most wicked, sinful, degraded and corrupt city of his day. Made up of people, he says, who were washed and cleansed, made new completely because of what he preached about Jesus Christ and him crucified. The work of Jesus on the cross changed people and he mentions the categories of people that were changed. Thieves and drunkards, con men and swindlers, straight and homosexual sexual offenders. He mentions specifically. That's what the preaching of the cross did when he went to Corinth. Now, can I digress just for a minute? If that is what the preaching of the cross did then, it is exactly the same today. Exactly the same. You may say that we're in these days of philosophical and moral attack on the church and its message. And we are. And you may say, well, I, I, I don't know what to say to these people. How can I argue about all the things that the people are, are talking about and debating in public these days? I feel so ignorant about all these things. Listen, you do not have to have the answers to all those things. The tip of your, tip of your tongue. The message, the heart of the message we have to proclaim is Jesus Christ and him crucified. And the preaching of that is what we're called to do. There are those, and we should be thankful for them, who can debate with the Richard Dawkins or Ahmed uh, Dats of this world. And we're thankful that there are people that can do it. And there, is, there are good arguments about that. But listen, if that is not your thing, you do not have to worry that you cannot enter into the discussion into sharing the gospel, even though that's the, some of the areas that are primarily being uh, attacked today. I'm glad that people like um, John Lennox, for example, is uh, able to stand up and debate in the Oxford Union and uh, other places with people like Richard Dawkins and others. And by the way, if you're coming to the Living the Passion conference, and many, quite a few of us are, you need to book... And there are forms here if you want them. And I mention that because John Lennox is one of the speakers um, sharing God's word with us on that occasion. Later in the year, you can ask me about it afterwards. But you don't have to know everything. You need to just speak of what Jesus Christ has done. The simplicity of the cross is so important. Jesus said, I, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. For most of us, if we spent our time or tried to spend our time rationalizing about these other issues, they would become a hindrance to us rather than help in our spiritual growth. Sanctification and maturity would not come from trying to study all those subjects. Rather, we should be those who are able to share what God has done. As Jesus said, we speak of what we know. Like the man who Jesus healed, the blind man, who when they came to him and said, well, tell us what's happened. 
He said, I can't answer all your questions, but this one thing I know, once I was blind, now I see. And all who are Christians can speak of Jesus Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. We need to get back to the simplicity of the heart of the message preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now the question is, what does the preaching of the cross mean? What, what, what is the result of the preaching of the cross or the work of the, cro- of the cross? What does it mean? What does it achieve? I've got five things to say, and they'll all be fairly brief, except the first one slightly longer. <laughs> I say that so that, though you may not know when the end is coming, you'll know we've passed the beginning. <laughs> what does the cross mean as far as God is concerned? And as soon as you ask that question, we tumble headlong into a de- major discussion about translations. John, 1 John chapter 1, verse 2 says this, We have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's what it says in the New International Version. If you'd have the authorized version, the King James Version in front of you, it'd say, We have an advocate who is the propitiation for our sins. Pretty well all the translations that you have of the New Testament hover between those two. They either use the word propitiation or they use the word atoning sacrifice. Or words to that effect. Now, the problem arises because these days we don't use the word propitiation, do we? I mean, I can't think of a single incident where we'd use that word. Propitiation, can you? (laughs) But that's what it says. It's a foreign word to us. And that's why the newer translations have come up with atoning sacrifice, which is a little, though not much, more easily understood. There is a, but there is a major theological difference between the two. No Christian believers think that the atoning sacrifice is wrong because that's what Jesus did. He was the atoning sacrifice. But that's not, what all, not all that he did. In that word propitiation, the atoning sacrifice is there, but it's more than that. And sometimes we lose that, the extra bit. He's the the atoning sacrifice for our sins, but he's also the propitiation for our sins. And it seems to me that rather than change the meaning because people don't understand the word propitiation today, it would be better to leave the word in and let people find what that word means or be told what that word means. So let me explain to you. The word propitiation means to make propitious. Now that's not much help, is it? But that's what it means, to make propitious. And you say, what does that mean? Well, it means to make favorable. To make favorable. Jesus is the one who makes us favorable. Is what is actually being said there. That's what the word propitiation means. Yes, Jesus' death was an atoning sacrifice whereby the penalty for our sins has been dealt with and been paid, but much more than that, it puts us in right standing with God. You see, sometimes hear discussions on television. Here's a man who's committed murder, particularly foul murder or something. 
and he is caught and he's sentenced and he goes to prison he spends 15 years in prison and the time comes when he comes out having sent, completed his sentence he has paid the price for his crime as far as the state is concerned and now he's free and that is right and proper but when he goes back home to the community where he came from the neighbors say we don't want him here and they draw up a petition get people to sign the petition they send it home off, off to the home office saying we don't want this man here thank you very much we want to get him moved away he's paid the full price for his crime as far as the state's concerned now he's free but his standing in the community is not put right at all just by that he still is not liked by the community but john tells us that our advocate that is the person pleading our case at god's throne our advocate is the propitiation he is the one who puts us right with god so that we're, we're not just the sin has been dealt with and the price has been paid but we've given a, the right standing with god we're made favorable in god's presence now i think that that's so often missed and it's fantastic to know it that we're made favorable again to god the full price for has been paid you see john tells us our advocate is the propitiation for our sins the advocate pleads his case on behalf of his client he's the lawyer for the defense of the person in court and when a person is in court the defendant in the dock i mean the 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 advocate says my lord i my client couldn't possibly have committed that crime he was 10 miles away and i got to bring 15 witnesses to say that he was doing something else at the time this crime was committed and he makes his defense he brings the evidence and everything to do with it so say that he couldn't possibly have done that particular crime or sometimes uh, he says well my lord yes that's clear that he was involved in this but there are mitigating circumstances the way he's been brought up and the way he's pressurized in his family to do it and so on and so on so even though he's guilty you should give him a very light sentence or maybe no sentence at all because of the mitigating circumstance now that's the work of the advocate the defense of the person in the dock but when our advocate at god's right hand pleads his case he doesn't do that at all and he does exactly the opposite he says yes my lord speaking to his heavenly father yes my lord he is guilty my client is guilty as accused of everything of which he is accused he's guilty of it all but i'm asking you to dismiss the case against him because the punishment has already been paid in myself that's what our advocate jesus does at god's right so he cannot be punished again Yet that doesn't quite answer the question how do we know that the one who bore our punishment is sufficient to meet not only the punishment but to put us back in favor with God how do we know that how do we know God's going to uh, accept us the answer is because the advocate the price was was provided by God himself that's the amazing thing see in that passage i read for uh, earlier in 1 John it speaks about propitiation but it's also that word's also used in in uh, Romans chapter 3 where it says this God ha- uh, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood you see God sent him to do that 
or in 1 John chapter 4. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation. So how do we know that we're going to be accepted? Well, because God himself was the one who provided the sacrifice. So we can know that we're set free. And not just set free from our sin, but we're accepted by him. Found favor in his sight. So what did the cross mean from God's perspective? Well, we can use that word propitiation. What does it mean then as far as Christ is concerned? And the answer to that is obedience. Obedience. One of the central themes of the New Testament is the obedience of Jesus. The dominant theme of the book of Hebrews and the book of John is his obedience. The Father commissions and the Son comes. The Father sends, the Son goes. The Father gives the Son of assi- the assignment of being the perfect sacrifice. And the Son says, it says, about, says of the Son, he became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. He was obedient. That's how Jesus came. It's a, it's a remarkable thing that um, when it speaks about Jesus being obedient, it was a terrible agony to the Son, to Jesus. So much so that as he was praying the night before he was crucified, he pleads three times in God's presence, if it's possible, Lord, will you please, will you please take this from me? And he did it in such an agony that he's, he sweat drops of blood, we are told. Please take it from me. But he's finished by saying, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. His obedience on our behalf. And the agony that he anticipates and pleads to be set free from doesn't become to him a source of bitterness and frustration. Rather, it becomes the very epitome of love. The peak of love. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Having loved his own, he loved them to the end, says Hebrews. That no, says John, rather. So much so that he could look at his enemies who put him to death and pray, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. He could look at his disciples and say, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. He could look at his Father and say, I delight to do your will. So what did the cross mean from Jesus' perspective? Loving obedience. What did the cross mean then from the point of view of the devil himself? And the answer is for that, defeat because of justification. You see, Revelation 2 verse 10, it's one of the most important passages where Satan is called, the devil is called, the accuser of our brothers who accuses them day and night. He's the accuser. He comes along and he says in effect, God, how on earth can you accept her? How on earth can you accept him? You can't just write off their sins. Your justice demands that they're punished and condemned. And then he comes to us and he says the same sort of thing to us. Do you really think you're a Christian? (laughs) Do you really think that God's going to accept you as you are? Look at your disgusting imagination, your impure thoughts and motives. Look at the things you say. Your deceitfulness, your hatred, your bitterness. You call yourself a Christian, a child of God. He's never going to accept you because he's the accuser. He accuses us before God and God before us. He's the accuser of the brothers. Yet the very very same verse that tells us that the devil is the accuser also tells us that they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. 
What's meant, of course, is that believers overcome accusations, whether it's in their own mind or before God or in the face of failure. They overcome not because they plead their own perfection or they think plead that they're very good, they're doing all the right things. Not even the fact, they don't even plead the fact that God loves them. They plead the fact that the Lamb has paid the price, the living sacrifice. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Naked come to you for dress. Helpless come to you for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die, is our plea. Nothing that we bring. As we thought about earlier, in his own work on the cross, our advocate pleads not our actions or how good we are or the fact we've changed. Not he, he doesn't even plead that God loves us. He pleads that he... Our advocate, Jesus himself, has taken the full punishment for us. Imagine the Passover. Do you remember the Passover in the Old Testament? The, angel, the ten plagues in Egypt and the, the angel of death was to pass over and take the firstborn son of all who did not put blood on the doorposts and lintel. You remember that story? Just imagine two of those people talking before it happened. Mr. Vogel, Mr. Goldstein talking to each other. And Mr. Vogel says to Mr. Goldstein, tonight's the night when the angel of death is going to pass by. And he's coming for the firstborn sons. Have you sacrificed your lamb? Mr. Goldstein says, yes, I have. And Mr. Vogel says, well, have, have you put blood on the doorposts and lintel? He says, yes, I have, but I'm scared. And Mr. Vogel says, well, why, why are you scared? Well, you've seen the plagues, the flies, the dirt, and the mess that came because of all of that, and the darkness, and the frogs, and the rivers turned to blood, and all the rest of it. I've seen all of that stuff, and I love my son, my oldest son. He's so precious to me, and I have to tell you, I'm scared. That night, the angel came and passed over. Who lost their son? Answer, neither of them. Because they put done what God said, and they put the blood on the doorposts and the lintel, and the angel passed over them, not because of the intensity of their faith, but because the application of the blood of sacrifice in obedience to God's command. That's why. It's what God had said that mattered. So when we stand before God now in his presence, and one day stand physically in his presence. Satan may be the accuser, but he's a defeated foe. We have been made just in God's sight. We're free people. Our justica ju justification is not based on how good we've been. But we come in the name of Jesus, pleading the blood of the Lamb. So what does the cross, the, the, the cross mean from Satan's perspective? Defeat, utter defeat because we're made just in God's sight by the blood of the Lamb. And then what does the cross mean from sin's perspective? The answer to that is redemption. The cross of Jesus provided all that was necessary to buy me back from the realm of sin. Listen to this. For he rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom he, of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Or as Peter puts it, for you know that you are not redeemed with perishable things such as silver or gold. You are redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, 
but with the precious blood of Christ. Sin had us in its grip, but we've been bought out of that. We've been bought with a price, says Paul. And it's a real price. Not just, a, not just theological jargon. We've actually, a price has been paid that we've been bought with the precious blood of Christ. Of course, there are dozens of ways of looking at sin in the Bible. Sin is a stain. The stain's removed by the death of Christ. Sin is an offense. The offense has been cancelled by the cross. Sin is an enslavement, but we've been set free by the blood of Jesus. Sin is a debt. Something I owe but could not pay. I think it was last Christmas or maybe the Christmas before that. We had a Christmas card that had this on it. He came to pay a debt he did not owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. Exactly right. In all this I am redeemed from my former way of life. The cross achieves our redemption. What does the cross mean from God's perspective? Propitiation. What does it mean from Christ's perspective? Loving obedience. What does it mean from Satan's perspective? Defeat because of justification. What does it mean from sin's perspective? Redemption, we've been bought out of it. And what does it mean finally from my perspective? Answer, reconciliation. Reconciliation. So many things could be said here, but the fact is I've been reconciled to God. It's remarkable how in the New Testament Paul could bring so many things about the death of Jesus out with its horror and its ugliness and its dirt and its hatred and all of those things. And yet in the same breath he ties it to love. All that misery, all that terrible thing, yet he ties it to love. He loved me and gave himself for me, Galatians 2.20. I'm accepted in the beloved, Ephesians chapter 1. That's reconciliation because he bore my sins in his body on the tree. 1 Peter chapter 2. What the cross cost God and what it cost his son Jesus is so humbling simply because it reconciles us to God that we never deserved. So what does the cross mean from God's perspective? Propitiation. What does it mean from Christ's perspective? Loving obedience. From the devil's perspective? Defeat because of justification. Sin's perspective, redemption. And our perspective, we're reconciled. Brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence, uh, eloquence, says Paul, or human wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and in great fear and trembling. My message and preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might rest not on human wisdom, but on God's power. Praise his name.